In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Welcome to the Man Card Podcast, where we focus on real men doing real life in real time while living in the stress bubble of life. Males are born. Men are made. We're going to separate the men from the boys. A man is as a man does. We want to help you to become the best version of you. Theodore Roosevelt spoke about this rare breed, saying, The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood the man card belongs to those protecting integrity fighting apathy pursuing god passionately leading courageously and finishing strong a man is as a man does enjoy today's episode men in the arena we salute you we honor you for getting it done in the stress bubble of life Loving your wife, raising your children, and serving your community. We are in this together, men. If you're a male, listen to this podcast. We want to call you in to places you've never been. We want to call you up to be the best version of you, and we want to call you out and say, get off that couch and become the best version of the man you've been created to be. So thank you so much, guys, for listening to this podcast. We believe when a man gets it, everyone wins. So, hey, I want to let you know also, we've got a brand new podcast that we're doing on Mondays. It's called Equipping Men in 10. A little bit different, but it's been great. We're having a great time doing that. And I'm Jim Ramos. I'm here with my producer and the ever-serving Dale Culver. Mm-hmm. How you doing, my man? I'm just here serving. What was that? Mm-hmm. You think about mm-hmm. the hamburger you're going to have later? No. Mm-hmm. Dude, bike ride. I want to go on a bike ride right now, but... Working, dude. I'll take you. I've got my. I got an extra bike. Do you? Yeah, I'll take you. I don't have to ride on your handlebars this time. I'll take. Well, I took the basket off. Oh, bummer. So, and I took the bell off, so we're not going ding ding ding. You know, type of thing. So that's awkward. uh, Yeah. So we should do a photo shoot like that and put it on the podcast, like the in, like the. Icon. No, That'd no, be hilarious. we're not going to have you riding on my handlebar. As a photographer, I just visualize. No, as these. a man, I don't want to visualize that <laughs> at all. That's wrong. So we're gonna. But I'll tell you what, dude. I, listen, bro. I've got that bike, yeah. and we can go. Yeah, uh, I could pedal it. I will pedal. I will wreck you. I need some stuff. spandex shorts though, with the little padded cheeks. I'm not going to let you borrow. Then mine. we could be twinsies. No, <laughs> I went riding with my buddy Rick the other day. In fact, you know Rick Wes. I showed up and he's wearing an orange shirt and his riding tights. And what am I wearing? 
the same thing. What oh, color like, are our helmets? White. I'm like, get out of the car oh, and go change. My gosh. Is this your honeymoon or no, something? You just no. got back? I don't know, man. I don't know. It's kind of, well, anyway. Hey, let's. Hey, so you got a bike word? Uh, not a bike word. Do you Pedal. have a man word for me today? No. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, again, I was thinking about our guests that we have on the show, and, and uh, man, I just inspired and and uh, he, what he does is so awesome, uh, yet very sad. So I googled this definition of someone who saves children um, that are There's in need. There's a word for that, and it said what came up was rescuer, and so I was Whoa. like, that is an amazing man word. A man is a rescuer. You see a need. And somebody who needs rescue, and you jump in and you just do it. And something's, you got to have that Popeye moment in your life where you say, I can't stands no more, and I'm going to do something about it. Wow. You know, yeah. I, was, I was hanging out with my son Colton. We were hunting turkeys this weekend. And uh, he said, Dad, I was thinking about this. There's this term they use for somebody who does something. Oh, what is it? And he, he was looking for the word rescuer. Yeah. But he said savior. Uh huh. Well, well, I didn't savior, want to, that's I go, not the word I was looking I know, for. I wanted I know. rescuer. But he said savior. I go, nope, that's not the right word. It's a rescuer. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny that you're using that word today yeah. because so it, so when you looked up a man who rescues children, it mm-hmm. came up, or a man mm-hmm. who what? Rescue, uh, saves, saves children. Ch- rescuer. Mm-hmm. Man, that's huge. Well, you know what? Even a man and his family. I mean, we had a, a we interviewed Dwayne Pickett. Mm-hmm. He's a mega church pastor in Mississippi, and he spoke about how his dad did this for their family. Yeah. And, and when, when, and the men matter to this world and men, when a man gets everyone wins. And I think when a man gets it, a lot of these things are rectified Yeah, as these guys come in and say, I'm going to, I'm going to rescue my family. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to redeem, uh, my heritage. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I'm going to create a new legacy. I'm going to have a family tree that forks, you know, type of thing to quote Dave Ramsey, you know, <laughs> but, I, but you know, I think that's a great word, Dale. And we've got a guy on today who truly is a rescuer, and uh, I, I'm, I'm humbled mm-hmm. to have Wes on today. Absolutely. Um, on a personal level, I'm humbled. Uh, I, you know, I looked him up on Wikipedia. I mean, if you, if once you, if you make Wikipedia, yeah, that's a pretty big. I deal. don't think I'm. You're on not it. on Wikipedia. I, I would check, but my phone's. Uh, been used it has right your now. name. It's a different person. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I don't. You know, and so man, it's just. So I'm going to read you just a portion of uh, our bio for our guest this week, Wes Stafford, and. Uh, it's uh, it's gonna take a little while, but I think it's worth it. I tried to take stuff out, but there's so many, so much content here that's important for us. So, Dr. West Stafford is president emeritus of Compassion International, one of the world's largest Christian child development organizations, partnering with more than sixty denominations, seven thousand local churches, and serving nearly two million children in twenty six countries. He has worked with overseas and leadership positions and ministry headquarters for four decades as an advocate for children and served as president and CEO of Compassion International for 20 years. He's the author of uh, the books Too Small to Ignore, Why the Least of These Matters Most, and Just a Minute in the Heart of a Child, One Minute Can Last Forever. He hosts a radio, uh, He hosts the radio feature Speak Up with Compassion. And Wes is an internationally recognized advocate for children in poverty, speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. He's earned, and this is, this is, I love this. He's earned an undergraduate degree from Moody Bible Institute, Institute and Biola University and a master's degree from Wheaton College, as well as a PhD 
from Michigan State <laughs> University. He's also been awarded honorary doctorate degrees from Biola, Trinity International University, Osbury uh, University, Colorado Christian University, and Lancaster Bible College. In his spare time as a young man, he was a, he's a veteran, served for four years in the U.S. Army as a linguist in military intelligence. And I know this from personal uh, experience. He's an avid outdoorsman, lives on a small ranch in Colorado with his beautiful wife, Donna, of 37 years, and his uh, two daughters, Jenny and Katie, the two children in the world for whom Wes is the greatest advocate of all. So, Wes, uh, it is an honor to have you on our show today. How are you? I'm good, Jim. I'd like to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is uh, I'm just praying that that one bar on your cell phone holds up. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. Oh, man. We are hanging by a, uh, we're hanging by a thread here. Oh, we are. So, Wes, I want to do something that I, I hope that you don't get offended by this, but I wrote a, a book. We call it our bathroom book for men. It's called The Daily Field Guide, and it's a 365-day book where – uh, we tell oh, men to yeah. put it in their bathroom. It's 430 pages long. We say, hey, don't get intimidated, guys. Put it in your bathroom and just read it once a day. And so I have an entry that I was I, I had called it in the presence of greatness, but I actually changed the title uh, to Running with Horses. And I want to I read this entry to you. It's in my book. And so I'm just going to yeah. read this to you. So I, I, know, I think I might have sent you an email through a friend about this entry, but let me read it for our – so our, our, our listeners, our men in the arena can hear – my interaction, my brief interaction with you. So several years ago, I shook the hand of greatness. <laughs> it, doesn't matter, that I'm in, it doesn't matter that I'm not in the bathroom, does it, Jim? No, no, no. You're, <laughs> you probably have better acoustics. But it, <laughs> so it, I can put the reverb on. So no, don't like, do it. Don't do it. So here we go. Here we go. <laughs> oh, man. Several, several years ago, I shook the hand of greatness when I met the president of Compassion International, Wes Stafford. With great passion and humility, he spoke of leading an organization that gives over 84% of its earnings directly to children. As he spoke, with fire in his eyes, I knew I was standing on holy ground. I couldn't help but compare him to the man my wife had married. Under great conviction, I thought, quote, I wish she would be married to a man like that. It was a defining moment. In that lunch meeting, I resolved to prepare every day for that one day, God willing, when I would have my opportunity to run at greatness. First, I needed to start running. But not like you might think, I also needed to find some horses to run with. Quote, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Jeremiah 12.5. I didn't know greatness until I saw it for the first time. We watch greatness all the time, but how many are truly great? When you find it, run with it. Great men inspire greatness, but greatness is rare. When you find it, start running. Greatness is found in the man who, in spite of his failures, is radically committed to sacrificing his life for God. When God finds that man, the Calvary is on its way. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, Second Chronicles 16.9. When asked about his passion, Wes instantly responded, I'm always just 10 seconds away from crying over children. I was created for this, end of quote. Horses know what great thing they were created for. And so I just end with that, Wes, to say, man, what an honor it is to have you on our show. Uh, I'm humbled. I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we have the opportunity now with our ministry as it's growing to speak around the country to men. And every time I close a message, I think of you. I have written uh, on my conclusion, strong conclusion, because the time I heard you spoke, uh, you shared a story about Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, uh, who had an opportunity to go to a service. And when he left the service, the pastor asked him, how'd I do? And Lincoln said, okay. <laughs> 
but you never asked me to do something great. And so whenever I speak, exactly. I, I have that written <laughs> down. And so every time I speak, Wes, uh, you've inspired me. So I just want to thank you well, uh, for uh, in your in your brief moment. I'm getting choked up. Dang it! Hmm. Uh, in the brief moment with you to to have to see the fire in your eyes and to see a man with deep conviction and passion mixed with humility, which is rare. And uh, so I just want to say thank you uh, for your impact in my life. And uh, you didn't even know it. Dale, why are you handing a tissue oh, for you? Did I make you cry, mine, Dale? Man. We're getting all emotional over here, Wes. you got to come and help us. Anyway, so... I'm, I'm, in... I'm sitting here crying. <laughs> Pull the plane up. Oh, let's talk about elk hunting. <laughs> anyway, man, I just... It's... it's uh... we, we, need to, we need to kill someone. Yeah, we really do fast. <laughs> That's a tremendous tribute. Oh, no, so much. Well, it's just an honor, man. And I, and I know that... I, I hesitate to read that to you because I know that you're a man of great humility, uh, it takes a man of great humility to to reach out to the least of these, and uh, you have done that. Uh, you've given your life to children, and I I read somewhere, mm. and I can't remember. You speak like seven languages. Well, not anymore, but I've been eight languages. Oh, well, you, know, you know, when I was a little boy, I spoke four of them every day in this little African village where I grew up: English, French, and two African languages. Wow. Well, can I? Can we go back? And English, to... English was my worst language. <laughs> It's the hardest to learn, I think, right? It is. It's a mess. If any, if any of your listeners can speak English, man, they should pat themselves on the back. That's a tough language. Well, well Dale's learning it, so we'll, we'll, we'll help him. So, hey, you know what, uh, Wes, you said in your bio, bio that everything you needed to know that you to lead a multinational organization, you learn from the poor while growing up in an African village. Your parents were missionaries to the Ivory Coast. And so you grew up with a village of uh, little children who watch, and you were watched over by a wise and loving African extended family. Um, it seems like our lives are forged in part from pain, and I know that you've experienced some pain from that those childhood years. Will you will you uh, explain to us some of these experiences that really forged you into this man who was equipped to lead a multinational organization? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we are who we are in large part uh, by who we were as little guys mm -hmm. when the cement of our spirit was pliable and impressionable. And uh, I uh, I am who I am from that. I often think, you know, that uh, when I was being born, the angels must have gathered around and said, wow, you know, he is really, really cute. Uh, but he's obviously not real smart. So we're going to have to make it pretty clear what he's to do. And so I got born into a missionary family, Ken and Marge Stafford, called out of Denver uh, to the Ivory Coast of West Africa. Uh, they had both been childhood sweethearts. They had uh, gone to a very missionary-minded church, but they had seen the scorpions and the python skins and everything that these missionaries <laughs> brought through. And they had they nudged each other and said, uh, no, that's not for us. Lord, please don't call us to be missionaries. And if you do, please, not Africa. <laughs> and the poor guys got both. And so I got to be born and raised in this little African village right on the edge of the Sahara Desert. I mean, we were remote. Uh, we had one road and only uh, and it was only two ruts through the elephant grass. 120 degrees was a typical day in that village. And we had no electricity. Uh, we had, we had uh, no indoor plumbing. 
I remember my mom used to, she was a city girl, she was a cheerleader, she used to stand <laughs> at the sink and look out across the Sahara Desert, the shimmering heat across the desert, and she would say, well, but at least I have one luxury, I have running water. Wes, run and get some water. <laughs> I'd have to run out to the well and back. I would waddle back and forth with a bucket between my knees. Oh, my and that's oh, where I spent my childhood. Now, the thing that was so cool about that was that the Africans, desperately poor people, but they had a saying, it takes the whole village to raise a child. Hmm. And this wasn't some plaque on their wall somewhere. This is how they actually lived their lives. It was a wonderful thing. Every child belonged to every grown-up. And so, you know, I, my sister and I were the, like the only white children for a hundred miles in any direction. But it didn't matter to uh, to the Africans. I, I remember I never fell down without some African woman, you know, just swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears. Hmm. Um, they all thought I was their kid, so I didn't get away with much, uh, <laughs> partly because I stood out. Hmm. <laughs> I remember yeah. one time. We used to all gather around, no electric, no radio, no television. We gathered around a campfire in the evenings as a village. And I remember one time the chief was saying, you know, the goats are looking real skinny this year. And it's not because we're in a drought. It's because the little boys are chasing them all over the village. <laughs> and in the swirling red dust, I don't know who all the culprits are, but I know this. And he pointed to me and he says, that little white boy is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so from that point on, I prayed every night. And I said, Lord, I, you brought down the walls of Jericho. You parted the Red Sea. I know you can do this. In the morning, when I wake up, let my skin be black like all of my friends. <laughs> and it would be the first thing I would check every morning. I'm like, oh, darn, I'm still white. I'm going to get caught. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get caught. I won't get away with anything. <laughs> but they they took me right into their arms. And so, you know, when I think of the poor, <laughs> that my one line, uh, my one barge, and my phone just rang. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. um they taught me what they taught their kids. And so, you know, as we were talking earlier, Jim, I learned how to hunt from the poor. Uh, I hunted with a slingshot, hmm. uh, a sling like David and Goliath, and also the, wow. the crotch type of slingshot around your neck. I was deadly accurate. We hunted every day. Uh, if we got something big, the whole village got it get to eat. If we got something small, it was just our family. Uh, we were very close to nature. I learned how to track. I learned I learned the, the, the spirit of animals and how, how to work it out. We actually you appreciate this as a fellow hunter, Jim. When we shot something, we would run. I can remember six years old. We would run to it, no matter how dangerous it was, <laughs> and we would kneel down beside it, hoping to get to it before it died. Oh, and wow. we would we would. We would we would we would kneel down beside it and we would apologize if we had heard it and promised that none of it was going to waste. We were going to feed our families. Wow. And so I grew up really, really close to nature. So I learned how to hunt, I learned how to fish, I learned how to farm in that little village on the desert. By the time I was fifteen years old, you talk about when are you a man? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was fifteen years old, I was a fully trained peasant farmer who can wow. eke out a living for a family if I had had when I was only 15. So wow. I grew up in that setting, and um, uh, they taught me not, not only the skills that I just described, but they also taught me my my heart and my spirit, my character. You know, they, they taught me about joy. 
they were incredibly joyful, although they were desperately poor. Uh, they used to say, joy is not dictated by circumstances. It's a very courageous decision you make when things are tough. Wow. And they taught me about hope. Hope is the same. They taught me about time. I never saw a watch till I was 15. <laughs> Came to America when I was 15. And uh, up until then, it was only the sun in the sky. That was good enough, close enough for us. Wow. They taught me about how to give, how to receive. Uh, one of the things, you know, I, I, I know you guys on this on, on this podcast, you talk about, so when are you a man? When do you discover you're a man? <laughs> I learned before question? I was 15 years old. Was there a tradition? I learned that if God made you strong, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. Mm. And if God made you brave, and there were a lot of reasons to have to be brave in my place, uh, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are frightened. And my heart got shaped by the poor in that village. And you ask, who are you today? Well, unless you know those roots, my heritage, uh, there's no way to understand who I am and why I live as passionately as I do. Wow. So was there a, a tradition uh, among the people in that village, that, that, that a rite of passage that led you into manhood? Or was there just a time when you realized 15 was it? They had, they had a rite of passage, but I left the village before I was old enough. I left the village to come to America finally to live when I was 15, and the rite of passage was 18. So it was so 18, I, uh, okay. Yeah, so I, I came to America and I was 15. But guys, uh, it had been quite a road. Not only had I learned the values that I would eventually use to lead a worldwide organization, uh, but I learned uh, how harsh life can be for little children. And, uh, um, you know, I, I remember, for example, uh, when I was about seven years old, an epidemic of measles swept through our village. Measles. Oh, wow. That's, that should keep you out of school for a couple of days, yeah. maybe. But because we had had a famine the year before and everybody was weak, it was a killer. And in the span of uh, two weeks, one out of every four of my little buddies in that village died oh. of measles. And, and you talk about when, uh, moments that matter in life. Well, I remember running to my father. He was translating scripture. You know, he'd put one of the languages into writing, mm -hmm. and he was translating the Bible. I was teaching Africans how to read when I was seven years old. Obviously, I could barely read myself, but I could read yeah. better than anybody for 100 miles in any direction. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I ran to my father, and he was translating. He looked up there, stood his skinny little son. And I had tears in my eyes, and he says, what is it, Wes? And I said, Papa, I got a question for you. He says, what is it? I said, when do you think it'll be my turn? And I'll never forget this, guys. He said, your turn for what? And I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying, and I'm thinking I'm maybe next. Oh. And I will never forget, because my father said, oh, son, you don't have to worry about this. You're not going to die from this. And I said, how do you know, Papa? I'm scared. And he said, well, roll up your T-shirt. And I rolled up my sleeve. And he said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came to this village, so you wouldn't get these kind of diseases. And suddenly, I realized how unfair the world was. You know, I've written that book you mentioned just a little while ago, just yeah. a minute. Yeah. 
I maintain that there are sometimes individual minutes that dictate the rest of your life. Well, this was one for me because I will never forget. I couldn't see my father's face anymore. It was blurred by the tears, and I stammered, and I stomped my foot, and I said, Papa, that's not fair. Why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Oh. And I grew up to become Compassion's president, and I put scratches on the arms of hundreds of thousands of children every year. But I remember the minute it all started, and my heart was being shaped. It was being shaped by poverty. I, I knew that the that little ones are weak. I knew that from the animal kingdom. I knew that the elderly were vulnerable. Uh, but I didn't know that my enemy was poverty. They didn't mm. need to die until that moment. I'll tell you what, if, if I and, and poverty were two kids duking it out on the playground, <laughs> and the teacher stepped in and said, hey, break it up, who started this? I would say, he did. Yeah. He broke my heart, and all I'm doing is fighting back with the rest of my life. Wow. By the time I was 15, I came to America finally, and over half of my childhood friends had died of wow. malaria, of measles, of snake bite. And uh, we buried them the same day they died. We had no choice. There was no electricity, no refrigeration, no way to embalm them. The village gathered around the fire, and the drums played, and we told the stories of these little ones and what they had wanted to grow up to be. And I remember thinking, why is it God does this, but God takes the good ones? Why am I still alive? And so, you know, I have lived a very passionate life, as I, I love your word, rescuer. I have fought my entire life to rescue little children, uh, but it came from an awful lot of heartache. I remember crying myself to sleep. I had to go to bed a little earlier than most, but because I uh, was, was one of the youngest that could go to the funerals, and I could lie in my cot at night. I could understand the drums. The drums were not just rhythm. That's how we communicated from village to village. It was one of my languages. Uh-huh. And I would lie there still in my cot, and I would heal, still hear the stories of my little buddies. And I would cry in those hot tropical nights. I remember I'd lie on my back in my little cot, and my eyes would fill with tears, and it would eventually would spill down, and my ears would fill with tears, and eventually would spill onto my pillow. And I, eventually I would drift to sleep, but a few days later, it was another child, another one of my friends dead. And once I understood that poverty was my enemy, that's it, I turned into a warrior. And that's all I've done with the rest of my life, 40 years of it. I've had the privilege of doing it in the context of this incredible ministry called Compassion International. I got, a, I got two million children uh, that I am fighting for and watching them uh, grow up to be all God intended them to do, pushing poverty back and allowing them to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. What a life I've been able to live. Man, that, and you're, and you're, we were lo- looking at you when you were born. Are you 68 or 67? 67. I, I turned 68 <laughs> next month. I mean, so you're still <laughs> a fairly young man, I mean, in the context of your life. And so I've got a lot of tread on these tires. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just it's just it's unbelievable what you've done and so now you're you're the president emeritus, but what does that mean? What does that look like for you? Cuz I know you're Well, still in I the heard fray. the word I was incredibly honored when they asked when the board offered me that president emerit. I heard the word merit in there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, "Whoa, this is some great honor." It just means old guy. <laughs> just old guy. 
as to what I what I did was as I was coming up on uh, on sixty five, I wanted to make sure that the next generation of compassion was really strong, really well led. So I announced my intention to retire, and I led the search for my successor, and um, and I uh, I picked him, I trained him. His name is Jimmy Miata. He's a remarkable leader. And now I have, for four years, been uh, president emeritus, which means I still serve. I'm, I'm sitting at my desk right now. I'm within 10 yards of his office. Uh, I'm only a beck and call from uh, filling in history for him. I got 40 years history with this place. Yeah. History, philosophy. Uh, but they also use me to uh, to write for compassion. I'm writing books. Uh, I still do radio and uh, speak in uh, in churches and at conferences and work with the, the sort of the major donors that came in under my time as president those uh-huh. 20 years. Uh-huh. And so I'm still engaged with the organization, but it is strong. It's under great leadership and going forward wonderfully. That, you know, you talk about, I know you guys care about finishing well. Yes. Well, that doesn't just happen. That was a deliberate effort on my part, and I'm so grateful that Compassion is in really good hands, going strong. Yeah, and Jimmy Miato, he was with Willow, right? Jimmy Miato for 20 years was the CEO of yeah. the Willow Creek yeah. Association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A I dear friend of mine. Yeah. Wow. So he was awesome. my dear friend for 20 years. In fact, he's the only outsider. I had been mentoring several guys inside his options, but he's the only outsider I suggested to the search committee and the board. I said, this guy has the background. This guy's got the education, the heart. Uh, he is what we need for the next chapter of profession. That's awesome. Um, so you don't So you don't ever intend on, uh, quote, retiring. You're going to fight the battle of fo- poverty and be an advocate for children until the day that you breathe your last breath and cross over into eternity. I absolutely will. It is uh, you know you now know why I care so much. Uh, I am so I, I feel so blessed to have found such a strategic weapon to attack poverty with. Absolutely. And uh, so I, I, you know, as long as I can advance the cause of compassion, I will. Uh, if for some reason uh, I, I'm not that useful anymore, I will still do it in in the context of my uh, of my own life. Here's the way I'd say it, guys. I say, you know what, I have shed a lot of tears, and I can't wait for the day, because, you know, Revelation 21.4 says that yep. God himself will wipe the last tears from our eyes, and I have shed many tears, half of my buddies taken from me. And the way I say it is this, I cannot wait to run into the arms of my Lord, and I cannot wait for him to wipe the tears from my eyes. Way too many tears for one lifetime. But, oh, I hope as he wipes the tears, he takes a look and realizes he's got to also wipe the sweat off my brow. Yeah. Because I lived the life he called me to live, and I cared for the little ones. I rescued the little least of these until I was, I don't know, suddenly and wonderfully kind of interrupted by heaven. That's the way I want to go out. Well, I I love your message because finishing strong is a... fifth uh, component of manhood for us and so many so many men today look forward to retirement so they can settle into nothing and to me that that's a killer of men Uh, and why do you think men today so many men today or maybe i should say males so many of these guys today look to that moment so they can commit to nothing and just drift why why is that in our society that that guys you know what i'll tell you why i'll tell you why i think it is I think it's because way too few people 
find their cause and throw their heart, their passion behind their cause uh, and for a life worth living. What they're doing is they're earning a paycheck, waiting for the weekend, waiting for yeah, yeah. vacation time. And uh, that's a sad way to live. I tell people, if you do not have a cause that can move you to tears in 30 seconds, and I'm cutting them some slack because I only need 10, <laughs> uh, then, you, then you are not fully alive. Mm-hmm. And well, I, yeah. I, I say, I, I beg you, do not live like that. We don't have time for you to live life stuck in second gear. So find your cause. Throw yourself into it. And it's got to be not about you. It's not. It's, it's got to be bigger than you. Uh, something that reserves your time and your talent and your treasure. Man, I and, love that. Uh, oh, gosh. I if was... you can do your cause and it gives you your paycheck, oh, my goodness, you are as blessed as you can be. Well, you know what's funny? You life. talked about being fully alive. I was in a coffee shop in Sisters, Oregon uh, at 46 years old, reflecting on my life, knowing I needed to mm-hmm. change, and I was reading a quote on a coffee cup written by a guy named St. Irenaeus, and the quote said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And that quote changed my whole life and gave me another mission. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting, uh, Wes. My wife and I have had several discussions last couple weeks about retirement. And I said, I told you when I married you that I don't think retirement's, you know, I'm not doing it. I want to run this race till God takes me home. And I think this mission is so important. How how would you help a man, uh, a guy who's 35 years old, listen to our podcast? Uh, maybe he's a farmer. Maybe he's an auto mechanic. What would you say to that guy as he searches and seeks this mission for his life? How, how would you help a guy do that? Well, you know what? Uh, with, with my life, uh, I would say... Uh, we've all got something to give back. We all have somebody that we owe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say to a mechanic, I would say to a carpenter, I would say, think back to your childhood. Who who, who do you owe? Who was it that believed in you before you believed in yourself? Mm-hmm. And do you remember what they said or what they did that made you the man that you are today? Ooh. And if you don't have a cause that uh, that brings home the Friday paycheck, then why don't you join me in the cause of being the champion for children that God brings in your life? I maintain if God brings a child in front of you for one minute, it's probably a divine appointment. You might be the one that says the right thing, does the right thing, that can launch that child's life. Man. And I often have men say, you know, I barely remember my childhood. I, I I don't know for sure what you mean. And I'm like, excuse me, but for 18 years, that's all you did was be a child. You are an expert. You deserve you deserve an honorary doctorate for having done <laughs> field research in this complicated field. Yeah. Um, and I would say, uh, look around you. Uh, you know, as the Haitians say, bloom where you're planted. Mm. Find something. It doesn't have to be your life's work as a carpenter or a, or a mechanic, but find something that stirs your heart that allows you to make the world a better place. Oh, man, that is so good and so your rich. Cause. So you yeah. are you are uh, one of the most driven men I've ever spoken with, as far as your accolades and your uh, all these things. And I, I know that living. Uh, with that kind of man must drive a woman crazy. I know for my wife, we struggle a lot with that discussion about slowing down, taking time, you know, taking days off, you know, overwork. How, how does how does your wife how do how does Donna deal with Wes Stafford, the husband? Yep. Well, we we had a good chance to think about it 
first because just as we were joining Compassion, there's another organization whose founder was a highly passionate man, cared for the poor, and he was in Korea, and he had a young daughter who just loved him, adored him, and um, and he was, but he was passionate about poverty-stricken children in Korea, and uh, one day at a at a, uh, a a phone booth. His daughter was on the phone with him, and she says, Daddy, please come home. I miss you. I need you. And he said, Sweetheart, stop being so selfish. Let me tell you what I see right outside this phone booth. I see a a child starving in the doorway over here. I see a child with no clothes over here. Just stop being so selfish. And guys, do you know what? They hung up, and she found a gun, and she killed herself. Oh. Absolutely true story. And I was just joining Compassion at that time, and Donna and I heard that, and we looked at each other and said, oh my, no, 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 no. We understand the passion for the children of the world, but if God ever lets us have any children of our own, they will never be able to say to us, you cared about all them, but you forgot us. And so we committed to each other. By the way, men, the most important thing you can do to help your children is love their mama. Yeah, that's, that's adoption. Show those yeah, daughters yeah. what it looks like for a gut, for a godly woman to be loved. Let them see what a man looks like when he works hard but still has a passion and a love for his, for his wife. And then, so what I did is I worked harder at the role of papa than I did the role of president uh, mm. all those years. And those two little girls, uh, you know, I got two million children that I'm kind of responsible for rescuing right now, uh, but I got two of them that got assigned to me. And so I would get home, I would put my briefcase down, it wouldn't even come in from the garage. And the minute I walked through that door, I was no longer president, I was papa. And I don't know how many tea parties I had and <laughs> how many things I did those little girls. If I was home, I was the one who put them to bed at night. I taught them songs. I told them. I told them stories that had to, the stories all had to begin when I was a little boy in Africa, <laughs> and I would tell them another childhood story out of my village. I would pray with them. I would tell them every time I took a trip. I would go home and tell them all about what I'd seen. The kids that we sponsored. We sponsored more kids than we could begin to afford. I mean, every night we prayed for Emmanuel, Renee, Diego, Laura, Alba, Mercedes, Yolanda, Vanessa, Cisai, Fatima. <laughs> My wife used to say, "Step away from those tables. We can't afford another child." <laughs> But my girls grew up to be compassionate, caring girls. Today, they're 30 and 34. Uh, my oldest daughter right now is in India for the month. She's a writer for Broadway. And she and Broadway uh, stars are over there working with Indian children, teaching them music theater. Wow. My other daughter uh, is the music teacher in one of the uh, elementary schools here in Colorado Springs. I look at... Uh, I look at the two million children that I've been able to impact, but I look at my own daughters and I'm like, there is my trophy. There is my victory. I I, I did it. Well, you clearly are a guy who is still and has uh, lived in the bubble. I don't know if we've met Dale, either of us combined, uh, a man with the impact that you've had to this point. Mm -hmm. What are some things, give give our guys some advice on, loving their wives, even in that intense stress bubble. What are some things that you did to love Donna? Well, um, 
we got married in a little church in Haiti. <laughs> we thought we were going to live our whole lives in Haiti. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I, I'm not a great hero at this. Uh, Donna told me just this very morning, uh, guess what this is the anniversary of 40 years ago? And I always guess, she says, you know, what, what, what was a week ago? I always guess our first date. Well, it turns out it was our first date. It was our first date. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and I said, oh, man, we should, have, we should have gone out for supper or something tonight. And uh, her health is not really good. She says, well, I, it's just way too much trouble. I understand. But we're, and I said, well, why don't you come down to the basement tonight with me, and we can watch the Golden State Warriors and the Cavaliers play the first game of the championship. I'll make popcorn and everything. And she, like, she hates sports. So um, <laughs> I, I, am, I am not the trophy for, uh, for what it takes to, uh, to do this. I just happen to love her to pieces. She has... Um, she has given me the freedom to, to, to pursue this passion on behalf of children. I told her early on, I said, honey, if ever I'm about to do a trip and it's going to be a hardship on you, all you have to say is, Wes, I wish you wouldn't do this one. Wow. Guys, it's been 40 years, and she did that only one time. Wow. And it was a trip to Asia, and I canceled two or three countries' agenda. Uh, and she... All she needed to know, I think, was that she could do that, and I would honor that because she's never done it uh, since she raised these girls with me gone. Uh, she's a remarkable, remarkable woman. Well, she was a sponsor of Compassion before I ever came along. Oh, and wow. It, she was the one that explained what sponsorship means to me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you know, we, you know, I want to write a book someday called Behind Every Great Man is a Greater Woman. Oh, my. Because, yeah, uh, well, let me tuck you. <laughs> wow. I, that... I can give you a lot of ammunition on that one. Oh, man. I, yo, she, never I, really gets, it... she never lets me get too big and puffed up. You know, I, mm-hmm. I get these big honorary degrees or something or other, and she's, I still shake her head and say, if they only knew. Well, I, and I appreciate <laughs> that uh, vulnerability because uh, on paper, it, you know, your, your accolades are almost insurmountable, but to hear you... Uh, be open and vulnerable with your marriage and say, Hey, you know, you know, I'm a human, I'm a man. And I I think that's really admirable. And that's what, that's what our guys need to realize that, that, that they may not be perfect. They will never be perfect, but they, they can be good enough and they can be uh, great men for God with a purpose and mission for the kingdom. And it's, it's a learning process. You know, we've, we've, we've been married now for 37 years next month and it's a, it's a, it's a learning process. And the trick is, don't stop learning. It, you know, just the tiniest effort uh, to do something thoughtful, uh, to say a kind word. Uh, you can do this. You, you do it for your work. You do it for everything else that matters in your life. Why on earth do we slap it in neutral when it comes to our own lives, these, these, these women uh, to whom we know we owe so much? And who are the most important people on the planet to us? That's our really? that's our wife. So, man, I'll, I'll tell you yeah. what. I, I want to honor your time today, Wes. I could sit here for about another four hours and just ask you questions, but I, I want to honor <laughs> you and and we're so uh, thankful for you taking the time to come on your show, our show, and share your wisdom. Uh, we just kind of raised our pay grade to, uh, with you today. So, man, I really appreciate it. Hey, how can our people get a hold of uh, your books if they want to buy one of your books? Uh, how can they do that? Yeah, the best the best way uh, it's in, they're in most of the Christian bookstores, but probably the easiest and cheapest way is Amazon. Okay, and then you're Just, uh, it's go ahead. 
I was just going to say, uh, look, it's too small to ignore is the book in which I tell my life story. And I, 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 I have shared read a little that. bit yeah. of that. You've read that one. Uh-huh. The other one is called Just a Minute, and it is 69 stories of people who remember the minute that their life got launched. <laughs> In a coffee and, shop. I mean, it's Tony Dungy, and it's and it's oh, book like, I mean, you can destroy a life. And Hitler went, in age 11, he went from a choir boy to a monster in one minute with a horribly abusive father. Wow. It's a good book if you... Uh, if you, uh, it's kind of like your book for the bathroom, there, Jim. Uh, it's each story is only a couple of pages, but they are all true stories of people who remember who it is they owe and what that person said or did. And what I try to then say to them is, so do that. The next child God stands in front of you, uh, be the be the hero. Wow, say something, that's... do something that launches that life. Wow. I bet you, if Jim, you and uh, you and Dale, if I, I bet you, if we had the time, and I was to say, who do you owe? Uh, you both could come up with somebody. I've never met anybody who is doing something extraordinary in this world that can't point to somebody that they owe for who they are. Well, I'll yeah. tell you what. We were hunting with. I took my son hunting last weekend, and and a mutual friend of ours, Phil, really focused on Colton, prayed over Colton, and I'll tell you what. It's the weirdest thing. He's he's a different kid because that weekend Colton, he had things spoken into his life that that really impacted him. And he already loves the Lord, but just just really impacted him. So anyway, thanks yeah, so much, Wes. That even uh, a father can't say. That, well, and that's what we were talking about. There another things, man needs to say. Yep. Yeah, yeah, men forge men. So, man, thank yeah, you so much. Exactly. So hunt, hunt down those books. Uh, they're good men reading books. I appreciate that. And we're going to get that uh, and, and read those and check those. Well, I've read one of them. Read the second one. And so uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show, man. So, man, you've been listening. It's my privilege, guys. Thank you. Yeah, stay on the line for a moment as we close out. Yeah, we'll stay on the line, Wes. I'm going to close out our podcast, and okay. we want to talk to you. So, you men, uh, thank you for listening to the Man Card Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please download our free Great Hunt for God app. Share our podcast with your buddies. Man, we want you to become the best version of the man you've been created to be. You can contact us through our app by looking at the Contact Us icon and reaching out. We'll uh, respond immediately. And remember, males are born. But men are made. Until next time. Be a man. This is Dale Culver, and you've been listening to the Man Card Podcast. Has your man card been challenged today? If you hunger to be the best version of a man, then purchase your own copy of the Field Guide, our bathroom book for men. Jim wrote this book for men who don't read books. It's a daily study of manly words explained with great stories. You will find enough entries to read one a day for an entire year. That's right, 365 daily readings on what a man is and does. Get your copy for you and your friends on our website at thegreathuntforgod.com. You will also find our five-book man card series. Grab several copies, recruit some friends, and champion the cause for men today. We are a donor-supported, nonprofit organization with the mission to transform the lives of men and those they love. If today's podcast has inspired you, consider being a financial champion by going to The Great Hunt for God and click the Give link in the menu drop-down. Also, download The Great Hunt for God app today. It is available in all the app stores for all devices. It has videos, podcasts, our store, and many other links to the world of The Great Hunt for God. Thank you for listening, and good hunting. 
What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.